Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. This podcast tells the stories of our members. I'm Tashara Dibley from the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, and you're listening to the first episode of our mini-series on human rights in Southeast Asia. Today, I have the pleasure of talking with Elaine Pearson, who's the Australia Director at Human Rights Watch. Based in Sydney, Elaine works to influence Australian foreign and domestic policies in order to give them a human rights dimension. She's an adjunct lecturer in law at the University of New South Wales, and from 2007 to 2012, she was the Deputy Director of Human Rights Watch's Asia Division based in New York. Prior to joining Human Rights Watch, Elaine worked for the United Nations and various non-governmental organisations in Bangkok, Hong Kong, Kathmandu and London. She's an expert on migration and human trafficking issues and sits on the board of the Global Alliance Against Traffic in Women. And we're delighted to have you here to kick off our conversation on human rights and research in Southeast Asia. Thanks, Elaine. Thanks so much for having me. So I've given a little bit of a background to you and your work. But I think our listeners would be really interested to know a little bit about Human Rights Watch and your role in the human rights advocacy scene here in Australia. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of Human Rights Watch, um, I've been with the organisation for quite some time. I was the deputy director, as you mentioned, based in New York, but actually supervising our work across Southeast Asia. And about seven years ago, I moved from New York back to Australia to set up the Australia office. And our office really focuses on not just investigating and monitoring human rights abuses that take place here in Australia, but also looking at Australia's role in the region and particularly our foreign policy and, you know, in some cases trying to get the Australian government to weigh in and address human rights concerns that are taking place in other countries in our region. So how do you define human rights in Human Rights Watch? So I think human rights for us, you know, really are about the principles in international law that ensure that everyone is treated with dignity, with respect, fairness, and so that people get equal treatment, no matter, you know, what country they're from, what ethnicity they are, what sex or sexual orientation they are, what religion they are. It really is, you know, at its core about fairness and about, I guess, getting governments to uphold those internationally agreed standards. So it's really an intersection of those values and principles of fairness and how they meet with laws and policies and the way governments treat people. That's right. And so for Human Rights Watch, we really take as our guiding principles international human rights law and international humanitarian law. So what would you say are the key human rights issues that Southeast Asia faces at the moment? Well, I guess there's a few. I mean, I think lately we've been particularly concerned about the undermining of democracy in Southeast Asia. Of course, I'm thinking particularly about Myanmar at the moment, given the coup that occurred in February. And this isn't the first coup that we've seen, unfortunately, in Southeast Asia. I lived through one of the coups in Thailand prior to when I joined Human Rights Watch. So I think that is a real concern across a number of countries, even countries that claim to be democratic, like Cambodia. We've seen the complete extermination of the political opposition there. And then you have other countries in the region like Vietnam and Laos that are essentially still one-party states. So I think the undermining of democracy is very clear concern across the region. And then also the space for civil society, particularly the shrinking space for civil society, And this is particularly the challenges posed by governments in terms of very onerous restrictions on civil society, those that are criticising the government, and also attacks on free expression. So the use of 
laws to criminalise bloggers, journalists, activists, sometimes that are raising uncomfortable truths about human rights abuses, about corruption in different countries. What impact has the pandemic had on human rights concerns in the region? Have some of these issues been amplified as a result of the pandemic or have they changed? I think they have. I mean, I think the impact of the pandemic has been pretty uneven across the region. Some countries have done very well. But in terms of human rights, our concern has been around inadequate access to information and particularly in some countries where individuals, activists, journalists have sought to share information about the pandemic and particularly about inappropriate or inadequate government responses. In some cases, we've seen those individuals bear the brunt of repressive laws in those countries to try and silence criticism. So, for instance, that happened in the Philippines. In the Philippines, we also saw the use of quite abusive curfews. In some cases, even the worst cases, we saw people being imprisoned or even shot dead for not obeying very strict curfew regulations. And then in other countries like Cambodia, I guess we've seen how COVID has been used as a pretext to clamp down further on human rights. So very broad state of emergency provision was brought in in Cambodia, which allows for very harsh restrictions on media freedom, for example. So these are some of the concerns that we have seen across the region at a time when access to information is really important because there's a pandemic, we want people to be informed. And unfortunately, instead, we've sometimes seen governments really trying to sort of silence criticisms about their inadequate response. One of the issues that's emerging at this stage of the pandemic is the difference in access to vaccines. I'm wondering if that is considered by Human Rights Watch as a, a human rights issue and how it's playing out in Southeast Asia. Yeah, vaccine equity has been a huge one for Human Rights Watch. And we have been trying to encourage Western governments to support what's known as a TRIPS waiver that essentially would allow the intellectual property of the vaccine that is owned by certain companies and governments to be shared with poorer countries so that poorer countries have the ability to manufacture their own vaccines. And unfortunately, we've seen that blocked by countries like Australia, the UK, the US, the EU. And so that has been a major focus of our work. I think as far as Southeast Asia is concerned in terms of vaccine, you know, we are concerned in terms of the poorest, the most vulnerable, you know, not necessarily having access to vaccines. And we know in the midst of a pandemic that if we don't protect everyone, then actually we're putting everyone at risk. So you touched on the role of the Australian government in addressing human rights in Southeast Asia. What role do you think the Australian government plays specifically around human rights in the region? Well, I think the Australian government could play a bigger role on human rights, quite frankly. I think that Southeast Asia is extremely important for the Australian government, particularly in terms of trade and security relationships. I think now we're also seeing this sort of strategic competition with China, which is encouraging the Australian government to be more active and vocal in issues across Southeast Asia. But when it comes to human rights, I feel like it's been quite uneven and inconsistent in terms of the issues that Australia raises. And I think that's because Australia really wants to remain, I guess, quite friendly with countries in Asia because it's concerned about China's increasing influence and growth in the region. 
the way to protect and promote human rights in Southeast Asia is not by behaving like China and simply turning a blind eye to human rights concerns or not raising human rights concerns. I think Australia actually needs to stand with the people of Southeast Asia and not their abusive governments and be prepared to speak up more frequently and more often where we see those human rights being violated. And we do see this from time to time. I mean, certainly the foreign ministers made a few strong statements about Myanmar, but I feel like that has not been backed up with concerted action. And so then how do you decide how to focus in on a particular issue? Like how do you choose in Southeast Asia, which are the human rights issues that you're going to do research on? Yeah, I mean, it's tough because there is a whole plethora of different human rights issues in any one country that we could be focusing on. And so our researchers are often looking at things like, well, what impact can we have? You know, will a report from Human Rights Watch as an international human rights organisation change the situation on the ground? Who else is already doing this work? Because if there are local organisations that are best placed to do the work or they're doing it already, maybe there's not such a need for us to do that work. It often means that we end up doing, I guess, the sort of more sensitive human rights issues, things like killings, torture, police or military abuses, or indeed often abuses during armed conflict situations, because that's often where local groups potentially could be more at risk if they raise these concerns. And so for Human Rights Watch to be doing so, there is some level of protection. I want to shift focus a little to thinking more about the role of research in human rights advocacy. Can you give me an example of how you use research in the advocacy work that Human Rights Watch does? Yeah, so research is really the backbone of what Human Rights Watch does. We have researchers based all across the region who are really country specialists, and they get out there, they investigate human rights abuses, and we do this work because we feel like by shining a spotlight on those abuses, by bringing it to the attention of that government and other important strategic actors, that's the first step towards getting accountability for those human rights abuses. So particularly in Southeast Asia, I guess, to give some concrete examples, in Indonesia recently we released a major report which looked at the impact of mandatory hijab regulations. So this is basically local regulations that require women and girls to wear the hijab or headscarf to public schools or in public buildings, universities or certain public places. What sort of training do you need to have to be a researcher in Human Rights Watch? So our researchers come from a range of different backgrounds. We certainly do have quite a lot have come from an academic background who may have extensively studied a particular country or a number of countries or a thematic issue. Journalism is often a very similar stepping stone to Human Rights Watch. We have a lot of journalists on staff who potentially have gotten somewhat frustrated, I guess, with the sort of short turnaround time and who want to go deeper than just reporting on a story, but actually trying to turn that reporting into action. We also have quite a lot of lawyers on staff. My personal background is I studied law in Australia and then moved to Thailand to work on trafficking. So, yeah, I feel like that's probably most of the backgrounds that we have of people who are researchers at Human Rights Watch. I'm also just curious about how big the team is who is doing this research. How many people are we talking about here? So globally, Human Rights Watch has, I think, 450 staff. And of that staff, I'd say 90 to 100 of them are researchers or research assistants. But it's basically one person usually per country. In some cases, like China, we might have two people covering China. So each researcher has quite a big job in terms of covering either an entire country 
or in some cases they're covering a thematic issue, but they might be covering like an entire region of the world and that thematic issue like women's rights or refugees or terrorism. Could you talk a little bit about the process within Human Rights Watch of collecting the data and, and how it goes from start to finish before it becomes a report that we see on, on your website? Yeah. So, I mean, some of these reports, um, you know, a lot of them are years in the making. Sometimes they can be done, you know, more quickly than that. But it is essentially the researcher going out, gathering information, talking to victims who have experienced firsthand these abuses, talking to witnesses, talking, you know, in many cases to government officials, poring over laws, policy documents. In some cases, particularly in countries where we don't have direct access to do the fieldwork, So, for instance, in Myanmar, we did not have access to Rakhine State when the Rohingya were fleeing across the border to Bangladesh. But we did interviews with Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. And then we also looked at things like satellite imagery and photos and videos of abuses. And so we do now quite a lot of digital verification to cross-check the information that people are telling us with the actual visuals. And that provides robust methodology for us in terms of ensuring that when we present those findings to a government or to the United Nations, that we can be really sure that our information is rock solid. So once the researcher has completed the fact-finding, what happens internally within Human Rights Watch before the work is finalised? We have a very rigorous, I would say, vetting process internally. So before any report of Human Rights Watch is published, there's probably at least six to eight different sets of eyes on that report. So it will go to the divisional director for a review who will interrogate that report on the facts. It will go to someone in the legal department, a lawyer who will be checking for compliance with international human rights standards, who's also checking that we're not going to get sued for any allegations that we make in that report. And it will also be reviewed by thematic specialists. So say if it's a report about women's rights in Indonesia, for instance, we will also have someone from our women's rights division review that report. And finally, we have sort of a program check, and that's largely so that whatever we're saying internally is consistent across the board with the organisation, because Human Rights Watch covers abuses in about 90 countries around the world. So say, for instance, if we're putting out a report on extrajudicial killings in the Philippines, we want to make sure that that is consistent with recommendations that we might be making about extrajudicial killings in Brazil or in some other part of the world. So at the end of that process, which can take anything from, I would say, six weeks to several months, then we know that the report is really robust. And at that point, we're often looking for a specific media hook or a good opportunity at which we can then launch the report. And that's usually the point at which we're trying to get maximum media exposure on this issue. And from your perspective, what is the role of academic research in the pursuit of human rights and of understanding human rights issues? Academics play a really critical role in terms of bringing, I guess, their close eye to research on a number of issues that we work on. And we collaborate quite frequently with academics in doing our research. So, you know, all of our reports generally have a background section where we lay out the political context of the country and what's going on. And often that refers to previous academic studies on the issue, which we often find extremely valuable. 
But I guess where we differ a little bit from academics is that our work tends to be more the sort of direct fact-finding, talking to the victims and the witnesses, and then we will refer to academic studies more for the sort of bigger picture, the broader, sometimes more quantitative studies, also that academic institutions sometimes do. But certainly we collaborate with academic institutions in doing our research from time to time. Hmm. It's very interesting. And just making me think about the differences between... I guess the goals of doing research for advocacy purposes versus the goals of doing research for academic purposes, where there's a very clear end goal in terms of trying to persuade people about a particular issue when you're doing the work for advocacy, whereas academics working on a similar issue would be trying to ensure that there are different types of methodological standards or different theoretical goals. Are there times when you've worked with academics where the differences in, I guess, the research process or the research goals have become a problem in terms of your collaboration or have actually benefited the kind of work that you've been doing? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, I think we don't collaborate too often, I would say largely because of our extensive vetting procedures. We sometimes may seem, I guess, a little bit inflexible in terms of sort of how we present the material. And so sometimes it makes more sense potentially for us to help amplify someone else's work rather than necessarily to try and sort of shoehorn that work into a joint publication necessarily with Human Rights Watch. But I mean, I think in terms of the advocacy goals, that is the difference. And, you know, every Human Rights Watch report has an extensive list of recommendations not only to the government that has committed the human rights abuse, but we think about, okay, who has leverage on that government? Who's funding that government, who has bilateral relations with that government? Are there corporations potentially that might be particularly influential? What role does the UN play? And I guess that is where we're different because, you know, when we issue that report, we don't just want it to be read by policymakers. We want them to take action on those specific recommendations. And so we are producing those reports with that specific goal in mind of basically bringing their pressure to change a situation or to hold a human rights abuser to account. Do you have to get permission from governments to do this research? I know that it's an issue for academics who want to do research in order for their research to be even published. They often have to show that they have the right government permissions. For Human Rights Watch, it very much varies, I guess, on the country and the type of research that we are doing. Certainly, we usually, at some point in the process of doing the research, we will reach out to government officials, we will try and get their response to the allegations, and we will share that information in our report. But we don't always ask for permission to actually go out and conduct the research Because for us, sometimes that can also put people directly at risk. Often the types of issues that we are looking at, torture, killings, uh, rape, assaults by, you know, militaries or police are precisely the kinds of things that the government doesn't want people to know and that the government is trying to keep secret. So if we came out early on and told governments that we're about to conduct this kind of fact-finding investigation, potentially it could even put people at a greater risk. What do you think academics need to do to make their work speak more directly to activists and policymakers? Well, I think things like the conversation have been really good in terms of providing, I guess, a more readable vehicle for academics to share their publications in a much shorter, more concise way. And yeah, certainly I think we find the conversation a really valuable way of, I guess, sharing those kinds of materials, but in more of like an op-ed format that can be easily reproduced. 
Um, but I think it's also just talking to human rights organisations like ours that are doing research on the ground and finding areas where we can collaborate. To give one example, just recently we put out a report looking at crimes against humanity being committed in the Xinjiang region of China. And on that report, Human Rights Watch collaborated with Stanford University's Human Rights Clinic at their law school. And that was actually a really helpful collaboration where the legal academics brought their knowledge and expertise at the legal arguments, whereas we had the more detailed on the ground experience and knowledge about what was actually happening to Uyghurs and Turkic Muslims in Xinjiang. That's a really great example where you just come with different strengths, I suppose. All right, Elaine, thank you so much for making time to speak with us. It's really interesting to get insight into how the research process works within an advocacy organization, which is incredibly different to how academics operate. And I think really helpful for academics who are interested in human rights and thinking about ways that they can make a contribution. Best of luck with all of your endeavors into the future. Thank you. You've been listening to SEAC Stories, brought to you by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. Make sure to keep up with all our CX Stories podcasts by following us on your favourite podcasting app. If you like the show, please rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, let your friends know about us on social media.